0: in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. If you want to grab your Bibles, uh, if you're new here at Strong Tower, we want to welcome you again. We're glad you could be our guests today. Uh, We're pleased to, to have you join us in worshiping Jesus together. And I want to say thank you again to the peace team leaders as well. I know we just prayed for them. We have our peace rally coming up Monday night. And if you've never been to a peace event, this is a great time to come for the first time because we're explaining kind of the update of what's going on, preparing for Uh, the big action meeting at the end of the month. And so uh, the rally is a great time to learn about what's going on and and the issues that we're working on to see justice happen in our county. So that's tomorrow night, 6.30 p.m. in Winterhaven at Hearst Chapel AME Church. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 19 through 22 this morning. 19 through 22. Hear the reading of God's Word. are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen, amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, Christ the Cornerstone. Christ the Cornerstone. Let's pray again before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you are alive as we sung. God, you are alive and the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit who lives in us and the same Spirit who now speaks to us through your Word. And so we pray, God, you would raise us again today. Raise us from the deadness of our sins, the despair, the hopelessness, whatever it may be that we come to the text today. We pray you would do a resurrection work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, uh, Google ran an ad for their Android uh, platform, and if you go back, and you you can watch it on YouTube, but this particular ad had a musician, a pianist, who was in a grand piano hall, and the the scene kind of zooms in on him as he's sitting at the piano, and it's this beautiful grand piano, and he begins to play, and he's playing this beautiful piece, and it was uh, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And as he was playing this beautiful piece of work, uh, you know, the, the screen comes up and there's this message across the screen, just one line, and it says, A piano has 88 keys. And then it keeps playing the music and he's, he's getting into it with passion, and, and you could tell he's, he's really into what he's doing. And then it says across the screen one more time it says uh, that each key has a different sound, each key has a different note. And then he keeps playing and keeps playing, and then uh, it comes to the final message across the screen, and it says, but what if each note was the same? What, what if each key was exactly the same? And then he switches in his seat, and he turns, and behind him is another grand piano, and it looks identical. I don't know much about pianos, but, but they look identical, and, and it zooms out, and you see he's on this huge stage with two pianos, and he starts playing the other one. And as he's playing, you notice quickly, it's not like the other one on the inside, because this piano was monotuned. And this piano, no matter what key you hit out of the 88 keys, every key made the same sound. And it sounded terrible. I mean, absolutely terrible, but he's playing it with the same passion and the same vigor and, and it's the same song. And you could tell he's, he's into it, but it's making this terrible sound. And then he switches back to the other one and you hear this beautiful sound. And then he switches back and you hear this terrible sound and he goes back and forth for just a few moments and then it says across the screen, it says, be together, but not the same. Be together, but not the same. Now, what does that have to do with cell phones? I have no idea. Like, what were they advertising? I'm not sure, but the commercial was fascinating to me. Because it's this powerful principle that you, you can have different sounds, but together they make a beautiful sound. You can have different notes that are not all middle C, and they make a beautiful sound. And I tell you this to say that there's, there's power in us as individuals, right? And we've looked at this earlier in, in the book of Ephesians where uh, we're talking about what God has done for us as individuals and we see that God has created us as as these uh, incredible creations that are made in the image of God, God. and and we have in us this ability to, to powerfully and uniquely reflect who God is to the world. In other words, every human being made in the image of God is not like anyone else in all creation. You uniquely reflect God in some way, and it's incredible. It's, it's beautiful to think about that. I mean, just take that in. I mean, C.S. Lewis one time, he said there are no ordinary people that every person you come across has something uniquely, divinely reflecting about them. Think about that. But with that individual power and glory and beauty that God has created us with comes this problem of individualism. And individualism... Is, is where you take this beauty of being made as an individual in God's image and you, and you twist it to where now life becomes about this self-project. Life becomes about how am I going to make the, the best out of my life? How am I going to find my purpose? How, how am I going to do the most and make, make my mark and make a difference? How, how am I going to have this project that I can look at at the end of my life and say I've done something worthy and beautiful because I'm somebody? individualism. It's all about me. And in our Western culture, right, this this is the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. There are some Eastern cultures and and even cultures here in America who who are not as shaped by Western culture, but uh, that, that is not necessarily the temptation. But for the vast majority in America, individualism is what we're trained in. And sometimes we just don't even know it. we're told our whole life, it's about me. It's about me. It's about me. And so how, this is what the text is going to bring out, how do we live with both this diversity of us as individuals, but the unity of us as a people? How how do we live with both of those, the, the individual uniqueness of me as someone made in the image of God, but also me as someone brought into this community of God? How does that work. And so today we're continuing our series in Ephesians. We've been calling it on being the church, on being the church, because Ephesians really gives this incredible picture of what it means to not just do church, but to be the church. And earlier in chapter 2, Paul was, uh, he was unpacking what it means, what the gospel means for us as individuals. He was talking about how we as individuals are dead in our sin, every single one of us, No matter who you are, where you come from, what your life has been like, he says all of us are fallen before God, but God steps in, right? And God steps in, and he saves us by just his sheer mercy, and he pulls us out of his judgment and his wrath, and he pulls us out of our bondage and our slavery to sin so that we can be with him. And he says it's only by grace and grace alone, right? But then at the end of chapter 2, there's this flip. After Paul addresses us as individuals, he now addresses us As a people, so he's talked about what it means for us personally, but now what does this mean for us collectively? And last week, Stephen preached and and talked about how God makes peace between us as insiders and outsiders together coming to God. But now we zoom in a little bit further, and Paul begins to push back on what we struggle with today. In our individualism. In fact, his definition of the church, I would say, is, is what you might call counterformation. Counterformation to the way our culture forms us towards individualism. It's forming us differently to be in the church. And so that's what I want to look at today. How is church counterformation to the individualism of our culture? We're going to look at it in three ways today. If you want to take notes, the first thing is intimacy. Intimacy. Look at me at verse 19 as Paul closes out this chapter. Look at what he says. He says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I mean, listen to that. Paul is contrasting again what we once were with what we now are. He's saying that in the past, you had a different identity. You had this identity that you were strangers and aliens. It's the language of of an outsider. You were somebody who who didn't have a place. You didn't belong. You didn't have a space. You, You didn't have a seat at the table. You were outside. But now God has done something to bring you in. He says you have this new identity as God's people, and you are insiders. But he uses this fascinating language. He says, you are fellow citizens, right? Now now you have a place. Now now you have a people. Now now you are part of something greater than yourself. You you are brought into God's kingdom. And and so now we are in something. But then he takes it a further step and and he makes this really uh, incredible statement that makes the language even more intimate. He says, members of the household of God. Now, it, it's one thing to be in the kingdom, but it's another thing to be in the family. Like, it, it's one thing to be a part of something that gives you purpose and perspective and, and meaning maybe in life, but, but to be in the family, yeah. that, that's intimate language, That's personal language, right? We we read this week in our growth journal, if you're reading along in the growth journal, Jesus' words to the disciples when they're questioning who's close to him. This is what Jesus says, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, listen, is my brother and sister and mother? In other words, Jesus was saying God doesn't just have servants and and soldiers and, and workers in his kingdom. God has a family. A family. Think about that. God, he, he, he has these people who are, who are intimately related to him and to one another. I mean, look at your neighbor and say, your family. Your family. This is why the old church people, they, they used to say, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, Right? I mean, it's because they're speaking to something deeply spiritual, something deeply about our identity. That that we're not just people who show up on a Sunday and we listen to someone talk for thirty-five minutes and we sing some songs and we get some coffee and then we go to lunch. <laughs> on, we're we're family, is what he's saying. Yeah. That you've been brought into something very intimate, yeah. very close. And it's this, this new identity as family, it it means something has changed. It it doesn't mean you've lost your identity as an individual, but it does mean that you've gained an identity as a people. You are family. And individualism avoids this kind of intimacy out of fear. Fear. Again, C.S. Lewis says it this way. This is a lengthy quote, but listen to what he says. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it'll change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and risks of love is hell. That's the intimacy. He's saying, I mean, in this kind of intimacy, listen, it, in, in a sense, it's, it's thrilling, right? I mean, we haven't been living under a rock, or hopefully you haven't been, but, but we've, we've, been, we've been struggling as a people. We've been struggling in our culture with, with loneliness and isolation and, and struggling with how do we relate in the pandemic or post-pandemic or whenever that is or whatever that looks like. How, how do we do that? And it was happening before the pandemic hit, right? I mean, years before the pandemic, the former Surgeon General got up and said that we are in the... We are in an epidemic of loneliness now. Like, the mental health state of our culture is, is crumbling. And then the pandemic hit. And we can all agree, it's, it's gotten worse. We, we can feel it. We, we don't have to read the studies. We don't have to listen to some, someone on TV tell us. We, we feel it in our own lives. And people have been studying now how, how much worse it's gotten. And there's a recent study that came out from Harvard that said that uh, about a third of adults, one out of three adults right now, would describe themselves as seriously struggling with loneliness. And they said if you're a young adult in your 20s, you, you are even higher, one out of two, 50%. Seriously struggling with loneliness. And so that's us. It, that, that's church people included. What, what do we do with that? What, what do we do with this, this sense of, I, I don't know how to relate to people anymore. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know where to go. And, and, and so something in us rejoices when we hear that God has made us a family and God has brought us together because we long for that, right? We crave that. We're, we know, even if we're not ready to admit it, that that's what we need. And so in a sense, it's thrilling. But in another sense, it's terrifying. Why? Because we know we have to be vulnerable. Right? I mean, to love it all is to be vulnerable. To be known and to know someone else takes a risk. It takes the risk of, of sharing our burdens. It, it takes the risk of, of listening to someone and giving you or giving them your time. It takes the risk of saying, I might get hurt, I I might get uh, somebody upset at me, I might have disappointment, and I I might have all these emotions that I'm struggling with, or or I might realize that this is more than what I could take, and and I just can't handle that. And so, I mean, there really is no efficient or or pain-free path to deeper friendship. But this is what we need. This is what we need. And In fact, this is how we've designed how we do connect groups at our church, the, the, the small group system we have to try to encourage relationships. It's meant to be a place where you cultivate that kind of vulnerability. That over time, this doesn't happen quickly, but over time, you're able to develop relationships that are deep enough where you can be honest when, we're time, when we have the time to pray. You can be honest when someone asks you how you're doing. You can be honest when, when you're having time together, just sharing a meal, and, and you're asking how your week went, and it was terrible, and you can say, you know what, this is what was really going on in my life. Because it's creating that space where we can be vulnerable with one another, and over a period of time, it creates relationship that really is deeper. But how do we do that? How do we push past the fear and the anxiety around that. Listen, it's, it's our secure identity in Jesus as His church. It's security in Christ that, that cultivates this intimacy with people. What do I mean by that? I mean that basically if, if you are insecure about what people are going to think about you, you're not going to be vulnerable with them. If you're insecure about people's approval and, and your ability to control the narrative out there, then then you're not going to really step deeper into their life or or allow them into your life. And so you'll stay at a distance. But if you're secure in Jesus and you know, I am a family member of God, that because of what Jesus has done, I've been brought in, I've been brought close, and and I can't change that and they can't change that. And so this is who I am. I'm secure. That means I can love. I, I can be vulnerable with them because no matter what they do with that information, This is who I am. This is who I am. And that's what Paul's calling them into. He's calling them into this intimacy that that pushes past that and and creates this freedom to, to forgive and freedom to love and freedom to be a disappointment and freedom to be misunderstood and freedom to know that this intimacy is possible. But we have to see it. This is who we are. And so that's the first thing that he's trying to form us against what the culture is calling us into. And the second thing, there's a second aspect here that's counterformation, and it's authority. Authority. If you're taking notes, that's the second point authority. Look at verse 20. Paul goes on to say this about the church. He says, It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. As Paul begins to unpack more about what the church is, he switches metaphors and he goes from a family to a building, right? From, from the household of God to the house of God. He, he starts talking about this building and, and he pictures the church as a building. And when he pictures the church like this, he looks at the foundation and he sees the foundation are what he calls the apostles and prophets. Now what is he talking about? The apostles and prophets is shorthand for what we would call today scripture, right? He's looking at both the Old Testament before Jesus and the New Testament after Jesus, and he's saying in the Old Testament, God spoke to his people by the prophets. The prophets were the messengers of God, that when God wanted to communicate something to his people, the prophets did that. And then in the New Testament, the apostles take on that role, and the apostles become the messengers, the ambassadors of God. And so when they spoke, God was speaking. And so he's saying that this foundation of what we have in the scriptures of the apostles and prophets, this, this is the foundation. This is the, the inspired word of God that, that gives us a foundation for us as his people. And so this, this is what he's pushing towards as he describes the church, and and, and I want to give you this picture real quick. On a routine summer night uh, last year, there was a residential tower in Surfside, Florida that tragically collapsed, and if you remember, it buried 98 people in a concrete grave. The most tragic, deadly uh, building collapse in, in our modern history And as they were trying to examine what happened, they they were confused at first to figure out what what was causing this because the building had stood for a while. It was 40 years old. I mean, it it didn't seem to have any visual problems. There wasn't any major construction. There wasn't an earthquake or a hurricane. There, There wasn't anything that you would think that maybe an explosion caused this. Nothing like that. And yet, seven minutes before the whole tower fell, the parking garage below, and the pool deck below that collapsed. And so they they hired engineers to come in and try to figure out what actually happened. And as they began to examine it, they realized there were so many things wrong. There there were construction things that were wrong in in, in the design and and also in the execution. But, But it all came down to the foundation. They said the structural issues in the foundation were were incredibly flawed, and and they said it was actually a miracle that it lasted for 40 years. That it stood that long. Because it didn't have proper reinforcement. It was basically a house of cards waiting to fall. Listen, because nothing in a building is as important as the foundation. The foundation is crucial. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying this foundation of Scripture is what the church is built upon. In fact, Jesus said the wise person builds his house on rock, right, not sand. And Jesus, when he gives this parable, he he says it's better on rock because when the winds come and the floods rise and, and all the rains are pouring down on it, it'll stand. The house will stand not because of the house, but because of what the house stands upon. And Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul is saying, that that the foundation is crucial because the foundation is what holds it up. The secure foundation of Scripture, that when Scripture speaks, God speaks, right? The, The issue that Paul is getting at is the authority, the authority in the church is this foundation of scripture and what he's saying is is there's an authority that's that's greater there's an authority that's that's larger that's that's higher than any one individual in the church and it's scripture and individualism rejects it rejects this authority out of pride right we we want to believe that that i am the authority we want to believe that, that I am the standard. I am the person that everybody else has to uh, you know, give their preferences to because I am the authority in all of my life. And so surely that should be the way it is in the church. Eugene Peterson, writing about this topic, he says, individualism is selfism with a swagger. I love that. It's selfism with a swagger. In other words, we're, we're proud about it. It's it's something that we we hold high in our value system that, that no one else in my life tells me what to do. No one else in my life has any authority over me. I am my own authority and I'm proud of it. Right? And the result is everyone thinks they're right. And because everyone thinks they're right, if anybody disagrees with me, then not only are they wrong, but they're foolish for being wrong. How could they think like that? There's no way that they they could come to that kind of conclusion. If they were smart people, they would think and live like me. Right? I mean, we we become the standard, and anyone else who doesn't meet the standard is suspicious. And yet we're not suspicious of our own thinking. We're, We're slow to be curious and to seek counsel. And we do it our own way in such a way that if anyone comes against our way, they're a threat. This this is the foundation of individualism, and it's collapsing. I mean, we're watching it collapse right now in our culture and in the church. Because everyone, it's like the book of Judges, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. What happens is is we can no longer relate to one another in a community of different people because no one else can be close to me if they disagree with me. Do you hear it? Because if I'm the standard and they don't meet the standard, then I got to cut them off. And, And so the only people who can be in my little circle are the people who always agree with me all the time. And pretty much, you know, you just keep cutting people off, cutting people off until you have nobody left. And it's just you. This is how this functions, right? People who affirm my self-authority, people who don't challenge me, that this, is, this is what happens if I become the standard and it's tearing the church apart. And so what do we do about that? Paul gives this strange answer. Scripture. That, that you, would, you would say that there's something greater than me. Something greater than you. Something greater than all of us that that is the standard authority over us that that we can say, I may have my preference and you may have your preference and I may have my way of doing things, but but here is Scripture. And Scripture is is what we are submitting ourselves to. This this seems so counter to everything in our culture because even, even the word submission is a cuss word. But listen to what he's saying. He's not saying an authority that that is authoritarian. He's saying that this is God speaking to you. And it's you submitting yourself, not not to any one individual, but you submitting yourself collectively to God himself and what he said. He's saying there's an authority that's greater than me, greater than my preferences, greater than my right to challenge and and to be uh, correct in everything. There's an authority that can set me free from myself and to give me the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And it's Scripture. It's Scripture. It's God's Word to us so that we don't have to know it all. We don't have to be it all. We, we don't have to have every answer. We don't have to be right and prove ourselves. We can say there's an authority that's greater than me, and it binds us together as his people. It binds us. And so there's intimacy, there's authority, and there's this third thing that's even more strange to us in our culture. It's conformity. It's conformity. Look at look it again at verse twenty. Paul goes on to say this, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, I love this because Paul, he, he continues on this same metaphor. He's talking about this building that's being built up, and he sees the foundation are the apostles and prophets, right? But then he looks a little closer at the foundation, and he sees what he calls the cornerstone. The cornerstone, Jesus himself. And now, there has been some debate from scholars who, who struggle with this idea, and, and they want to translate it capstone, It's kind of a newer thing that people have started doing now. You may see it in some translations, because they want to view Jesus as the capstone, which was the last stone, and everything else kind of holds together around that capstone. And although that may be true of Jesus, that image may be true, it's not true in the context. What Paul is doing in the context is he's imagining this building that the whole thing is built from the bottom up. And so even before the foundation, he goes lower than the foundation, and he sees the cornerstone at the bottom upon which the foundation itself is put. And then on top of the foundation, you see all these living stones that are built on top of that, and that's the members of the church. And so he sees Jesus at the bottom, at the core, and the cornerstone was the place, it was, it was the first stone that you would lay in the ancient structures. You would lay the cornerstone, and every other stone around it would be cut to fit customly towards that cornerstone. You understand what I'm saying? So in other words, if the cornerstone was in a certain spot, the next stone to go would be cut to fit, and then the next stone would be cut to fit, and the next stone would be cut to fit so that they all conform to the very first stone, the cornerstone. He's saying, that's Jesus in the church that every other stone in the building, every other stone in the structure is conformed to him. Yeah. Yeah. Archaeologists have actually uncovered massive stones from the temple in Jerusalem. One of them discovered from the southern wall, it, it measured 38 feet 9 inches across. That is a massive stone. 38 feet 9 inches across. I mean, you could just picture the temple and all its beauty. That, that's the stone at the foundation. This huge structure that was filled with glory of gold and, and jewels and, and all these wonderful things. I mean, it was the pride of the Jewish people. Of course, then the, the Gentiles in Ephesus, they had their own temple as well. They had the famous temple of Artemis or Diana. And in this temple... You know, they, they had just as big uh, of stones and just as majestic uh, decorations and artwork, and, and people would come from all over the world to come worship at the temple of Artemis. And so Paul, fascinating enough, he, he writes this letter to the Ephesian church full of Gentiles and Jews. And each of them had their temple. Each of them had their glory. Each of them had this place that they took pride in. And he says, listen, Both of your temples are empty. The Gentile temple of Artemis, God never dwelled there. And and even the temple in Jerusalem, God is no longer dwelling there. He says there's a new temple. He's describing something completely different that that actually brings them together. This is why he uses the imagery of the church, not not as individuals, but collectively. He says we're, we're all growing into this holy temple in the Lord. A household brought together built on the foundation of his word, and conformed to Jesus himself. God is, is building this new structure. It's what First Peter says in First Peter 2, uh, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, right? In other words, what, what Paul and Peter are saying is, is that even though our culture may, may hate this kind of conformity, right, because we, we love to be individuals, we love to be unique, and we love to have our special niche, he says, this is a different kind of conformity. This is not a conformity to some other image bearer like yourself. This is conformity to the image himself. This is conformity to Jesus. Not, not to anyone else, but to Jesus, God in human flesh. And this kind of conformity to Christ, this, this is the hope of the church. This, this is what God is bringing about in his people because God has fulfilled his promise. Let me trace back for a moment and, and stick with me for a second. The mark of the garden was the miracle of God's presence. Right? If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the, the, the incredible thing about the garden was God was taking walks with his people. God was walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, just leisurely hanging out with his people because he was that close, that intimate with them. And when Adam and Eve fell into sin, right, that presence was lost and all humanity was exiled out of the garden and we lost it. We lost it. But God made a promise. God made a promise that I will still be their people and they or I will be their God and they will be my people. We will be together again. There will be this mutual fellowship once again. He made this promise. And so then he tells Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Right? God is saying, I haven't given up on my promise. I haven't given up with this intimacy with my people. And so I want you to build me something to dwell in. And so Moses builds the tabernacle and God comes and he fills the tabernacle with his presence. But even when that glorious day happens and God's glory falls in the temple, they all know it's limited. It's just one place for one small group of people, and not even for the whole people. It was just for a few people who had gone through all these rituals to be holy enough to be in God's presence. It was so limited because God wanted more. And so God, when, when David tells God, I, I want to make a permanent temple for you. I want to build this incredible structure to honor your name. God reminds David, I don't dwell in houses like that, but, but you can build something if you think it's going to be nice. But, but God is not, he, he's not limited to that kind of place. That, that's not where he wants to go. That's not what he's bringing this story to see. He says, I, I have more than that. I, I want my presence for all creation. And so the biblical tension throughout the whole Bible is, how's he going to do it? How's he going to restore this intimacy with his people? How's he going to dwell with his people? And ultimately, God fulfills his promise, not through a building or through a place, but a person. John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt or, or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What John is saying is the temple has taken human form, right? Jesus among us was God walking with us. Emmanuel, like in the garden, God was walking with us walking with us in our sins, walking with us in our failures, walking with us in our hurts, in our pains, in our, in our struggles, in our doubts. He's, he's walking with us. Right? God came to earth to, to experience what we experience, to be tempted in every way, yet without sin, so that He could be present. Present in Christ at all times until Jesus made His way to Calvary. And as he hung on the cross, he hung between God and sinful humanity. And for the first time in all eternity, Jesus felt distance from his Father. He sensed the presence had left him. And as Jesus took our sin upon himself, becoming sin for us, the presence of God was in fact Taken from him. The father turns his face away. The son cries out in anguish. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. I'll tell you why. It was for us. Yeah. The father forsook Jesus so that he would never have to forsake you and me. Yeah. And now this, this God who dies on the cross, he, he accomplishes our salvation so that he could send his very spirit to live in us. Yeah so that the Son who was God with us now becomes the God who is in us, right? God in us by His Spirit. God in us, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. God in us who secures us in our fears and doubts. God in us who empowers us in our weakness and frailty. God in us who heals our brokenness and shame. God in us who unites us as His people despite a culture that divides us. God in us who bears fruit despite our barren past. God in us who conforms us to the very image of his son Jesus, our cornerstone. He cuts us into his shape. He custom fits us to himself. He's building us up into beauty beyond our imagination because he's God in us, his church, his church, his very people. God has said, I have, I have come to, to build you into a place where I dwell forever. Because this, this is my design. And so he's conforming us to his son, Jesus, as his church. And are we, are we willing to be conformed? Are we willing to be set free from our own self-project of, I want to be this, and I want to do this, and I want to be my own God, and I want to have my own authority. Are we willing to say, you know what? I'm a part of something greater than myself. God has redeemed not just me, but a a whole people, a whole people that he's, He's building into something beautiful because He wants to dwell in us. Are we being conformed to that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift, the gift of salvation. And the gift that our salvation isn't just for us, but it's for a whole people. That you've redeemed a people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. You've, you've redeemed a people from every uh, corner of the earth to be brought in. And to say, there, there are no insiders and outsiders now, but there's just family. And all of us as one family, we are built on this foundation of what you say and who you are. And at the very foundation is the stone, Jesus himself who conforms all of us into his image. And Lord, just to think about how you are doing that work despite all of our sin and all of our failures, you are building us into something more beautiful than we could ever build. Lord, I pray that we would Submit to that and find the joy of being a part of your church, your household. May you dwell in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.